Welcome to our series Crossroads in Therapy Notes on Access in collaboration with Tangent Mental Health Initiative. In this episode, we delve into the ethical responsibilities of therapists in mental health care work. The speakers discuss using different models of therapy, use of language and setting up the frame of therapy in the Indian context. Our host Ahana is in conversation with Dr. Chetna Duggal an associate professor at the School of Human Ecology TISS Mumbai a psychotherapist trainer supervisor and author with over 17 years of experience she anchors field action projects such as rehbar and simha with a focus on areas of supervision and child and adolescent mental health we've been thinking about that yes we need to talk about accessibility from a practice standpoint that how does it translate into things were doing differently in the therapeutic space but i feel somewhere we also started thinking along the lines of what might be the therapist's role in also embracing the idea that accessibility is an important conversation to have when they are co-creating a therapeutic space of any kind that's where we wanted to begin this exploration for today perhaps is to think about why might this be an ethical responsibility or something that therapists should hold themselves accountable for when it comes to mental health care what are your thoughts on this now yeah so i completely agree ahana that we need to talk about accessibility a little bit more because sometimes i feel that we don't delve into it enough to really think about what might open up in the therapeutic space if we were to think more deeply about this aspect of accessibility and i was thinking it of it from a couple of perspectives the first thing i was thinking about was that when we think of accessibility for us to even break down and deconstruct what do we mean by accessibility are we talking about accessibility in terms of financial accessibility because that's the most common way to think of it like economically will someone be able to afford to pay for our services and i think that's one of the most well acknowledged part of accessibility but at the same time it's one of the most challenging ones as well when we start unpacking accessibility it also means for example you often talk about geographic or location wise accessibility where am i located or you know we are in a particular sort of a setting where there is no easy access to reach us so accessibility can also be about where we are physically present and then of course i think with the pandemic suddenly there has also been conversation about those wise like you know in terms of digital access because now we are all on online platforms we all have our details available in lists digitally access is also in terms of awareness like if there isn't that awareness that this person exists or this service exists accessibility immediately gets counteracted and then of course we also know that it makes something accessible or not so i feel like the whole idea of in which language are we providing that service and whether or not that language itself is accessible and we can of course keep unpacking accessibility you know really in our minds we might think that we have taken care of accessibility but when we unpack all the dimensions of accessibility for example we know that someone might have a particular kind of limitation to reach us then have we taken care of that because that's a limitation that we might have contributed to so where is our responsibility there so that's one part of the conversation the other thing that i was also thinking about in terms of accessibility in terms of just stigma and i feel we talk about stigma as if it's a little bit of a distant thing but the truth is there is a lot of internalized stigma that is clearly linked to accessibility and that needs a little deeper conversation as well so that's one bit of the perspective that i wanted to highlight but i think i'll come back to also this thing about is it an ethical issue and i feel like it is to do with ethics and values both 
and i feel that from the perspective of are we able to do things in the best interest of the client as well as from a value perspective thinking a little bit about whether we endorse values such as social justice whether we endorse values like equity do we acknowledge that there are inequities so i also feel like it becomes about endorsing certain values mm. and making real the values that we perhaps might yeah. if i just stay with the idea of financial access it's such an inherent dilemma in itself right for a lot of therapists it's also a matter of financial sustainability of the professional them being compensated for their time and for them to be able to make a living out of it and at the same time being able to ensure that their services are reaching the people who need them the most what is your thought about this inherent dilemma that might come from here how do i navigate this dilemma then i just want to endorse the fact that as a profession of course there has to be some acknowledgement that the services or the care that we are providing and i'm calling it care because i just feel like therapeutic work is so meaningful and so valuable that there has to be some commensurate financial compensation for practitioners and if we do want young people to stay in the space and actually continue providing good quality care where we are expecting that they will do things for their professional development where they will meaningfully engage and seek out opportunities for supervision as well as ongoing professional development that means that they have to have some financial compensation that is commensurate to the work that they are doing in any case as a profession we know that it's really challenging because other services and other sort of professions are much more highly paid so even when young people are making this choice they are very well aware that they are actually picking up care profession and that might not pay as much as another service yeah or another sort of a profession so i do feel like strongly advocating so people are able to be able to charge for their services is a very important part of the work that we need to do particularly in our country now having said that we all know that the treatment gap is really really huge the only way we can solve for it is to ensure that we are able to create accessibility and like we know that economic accessibility is not the only way but it is one of the most important ways in which we can make this possible and i do think that there are a couple of parts to this so one part is in terms of possibilities like what is possible so if we say that if we were to list out all possible things we are able to do like a lot of us would probably keep a few slots which we would seek clients for a token amount or pro bono or yeah. you know some of us would say have a sliding scale there's another strategy that some of us use is if particularly for example if you're doing personal therapy for other professionals is yeah. your hour is my hour so you know if if what you charge your client i will charge for this session and these are i think some of the more well known ways but i think the other things that people can start thinking about are like simple things like starting a group where we know that i might not be able to accommodate so many people at a low fee but i can run a group which is accessible to people and the other is of course like working with systems and sometimes we we might think that unless i'm actually seeing a client one on one and i'm making this accessible then i'm not contributing enough but i think advocacy awareness building working with systems making systems also more enabled or empowered can be a big part of the work that we might end up doing so in terms of just possibilities i think the conversation really opens up for people to see that there is not just only one route to making mental health quality care accessible there are so many yeah. other possibilities having said that i also feel like the other part of the conversation which is actually acknowledging the emotions that come up 
which you were saying that the fact that there can be shame about it there can be guilt about like oh am i being seen as someone who's only focused on money and then is that fitting in with my professional identity or i'm so privileged because i have a particular kind of a workspace and only a certain kind of clientele comes to me so should i feel more uncomfortable with my privilege and i feel like those are also conversations that we need to have particularly when we are early on and setting up our practice because unless we have open conversations about privilege and acknowledging that privilege the one of the things that can happen you're rightly saying is that there can be shame associated with that privilege and that's not very helpful because that shame only keeps us more stuck in that space and really to think about that if we were able to acknowledge our privilege work through that privilege and open up possibilities then i think it would actually help us move to think of what we can do to use some of the privilege that we have so i feel like it's a like two sides of the coin we can't only yeah. think of the solution yeah. but we also perhaps need to think of what it evokes in us as practitioners and have spaces to dialogue that as well because i feel as a profession also we can create a culture of valuing some things and not valuing something if someone is doing something a particular way they can also feel like the profession is perhaps not maybe accepting of that and yeah that might change things so how can the system actually open up possibilities for young people without judgment from like earlier this month the law has been passed or like it's been mandated that insurance companies have to cover mental health services as well and it's one of the examples of how systemic change can have an impact on access perhaps but i think you've brought up something ma'am that really struck a chord with me which is the idea of deploying our privilege in a way that informs change and not necessarily from a space of sitting with shame or feeling stuck with the guilt that might come from privilege that we might hold because also in our country and in our cultural context privilege is also on a spectrum right and i think in so many ways some of our some aspects of our identities might have privilege the other aspects of our identity that may be marginalized and i think the degrees of marginalization therefore then comes in and i'm curious to know or hear from you in terms of your thoughts around how does a therapist's ethical responsibility around access shift with privilege i'm going to connect this back ahana to what you were saying even before this about like this idea of therapeutics spaces themselves and that access doesn't end when someone enters our door and we yeah. feel like okay now the access issue is solved it's solved i completely agree with you that the fact that reflective work needs to continue and we keep thinking about accessibility right till that point in time that we are working with our clients and also knowing that after we have terminated that access is still possible for that person that shift in perspective because sometimes we might oversimplify access as okay like now that this person client is able to reach us they are able to pay for our services it's sorted so i'll i'll come back to about this aspect of language and i feel like there are maybe three layers to this and maybe in my mind the way i'm thinking about it is the first layer is the language itself which is the easiest part to solve from yeah. a perspective of do i speak the language of my client now the fact that all of us have access to a language like english we yeah. know that that itself is a privilege the moment we are talking about a language which works for everybody in terms of our clients whether or not we are able to speak that language how fluent we are in and how much effort we make is the first layer and of course like you're saying our, our training is mostly in english it's so much easier to communicate all those strategies techniques interventions yeah. skills in english have i made the effort to actually speak another a language the other thing that also comes in with language like you said is also the 
how language can actually distance people from the process and it, it creates a distance where if i use too much jargon or i use or too many metaphors or too many ideas which are very distant from the life of that person the language can actually distance the person from that process itself that process can feel alien or it can feel not owned and that has nothing to do with the actual language we speak sometimes mm-hmm. even in english yeah. we can make sure we do it even if both of us are speaking the same language and if we are speaking bangla also we can do it we can make sure that we can distance each other on the basis of just how we are talking about some things yeah Absolutely. And the third layer, which is another layer, is the fact that language not just communicates information, it communicates attitude. And I feel like that is something that we perhaps maybe need to speak more about. Because we usually speak about, okay, which language? And then maybe we go to level two and layer two where we say, okay, you know, how language? But there's another third layer of what through language. And that's where it sort of brings me back to what you were saying about this aspect of intersectionality. And mm-hmm. my social location and the client social location is perhaps not going to be the same because we all have a very unique social location and our identities we might have similar identities some similar identity markers some not so similar identity markers and that part where you know i might on the back of my own ideas about another person's experience or identities bring in my own isms my own prejudices my own biases and knowingly or unknowingly communicate those through the language that i use and a simple thing could be just like if there is a social class difference between the client and the therapist and the, the therapist recommends something which is not in the purview or the experience of the client that itself also then further alienates the client from the process so language is really very very powerful and can actually cut off access at many many points yeah the person it can be available to the person in reality but still not be available to the person so, yeah. so the care might still not be available and i think for us to think of it not just as an entry point but how do we then keep facilitating yeah. that access to the process right through yeah and i think for me the visual that keeps coming up is this idea of if these three layers of language access are not perhaps thought through or if that's not a continuous engagement that we're engaging in then the way it perhaps might end up translating in therapeutic process is that it would look like the client having to do a lot more labor to meet the therapist where they are in their thoughts so then the client is constantly having to build bridges to understand where the therapist is coming from and for me that also ties up to power in the therapy room access is a continuous effort that perhaps has to come in in every session in every interaction we're having with our clients or with people that we engage with So that also means that I may have to relook at what I may have learned and some of the stances that may come from some of these therapeutic frameworks as well. Is there need for critical thinking around that? You're absolutely right about that. That you know, when it comes to certain models or theoretical frameworks, they are at best frameworks, and they are supposed to perhaps just give us some anchor points to operate from. But when these frameworks become so powerful, that they become oppressive in themselves and in us trying to follow them we are sort of losing track of what really is coming up from the client then i think they stopped serving their purpose i think also perhaps recognizing that the frameworks are supposed to do what they are supposed to do in terms of give us the basic anchors of how mechanisms of change therapy we know that there are so many models that explain a lot of all of this so 
yeah. i think the recognition that the mechanism of change is there is not just only one way in which change occurs there are multiple ways in which change occurs and the the models are giving us some levers to look at in terms of yeah. how this might work and what might open up a possibility of change so we are able to do what we are supposed to do is which is help people in their distress these models are also based on certain underlying values or they are based on certain underlying philosophical assumptions and i think as we are moving towards a more social justice informed paradigm where there's a lot more recognition in the discipline the discourse is so much more informed and i feel like young practitioners these days are far far informed about these aspects about power about language about postmodern aspects understanding aspects of how ideas are socially constructed i feel like the zeitgeist now allows for a lot of this reflective thinking where people are also able to make more informed choices about the values that they will endorse and what they will bring into their practice i also feel like young people are also choosing theoretical models and frameworks and practitioners are looking to seek for those kinds of frameworks which fit in with these values that they endorse so their engagement with individuals communities is also linked to the fact that it has to resonate with who i am as a person and the values that i endorse and the work that i do so i feel like i'm also aware that of course the shift that is ongoing but at the same time the possibilities have opened up just another aspect that i think that was coming up for me when we were speaking about this that you know how do we translate some of this to the realities that exist and the identities of our clients and the contextual aspects and i feel like some of it is visible and some of it is not so visible and some of it is actually fairly invisible some aspects which are visible we are comfortable talking about yeah. i feel like there is still a lot of openness about some aspects of diversity maybe people are more open to talk about say things about things like religion that okay i accept that i don't know maybe you can tell me a little bit more i'm ready to yeah. learn there's more growing awareness about being gender fluid diversity in sexual orientation people are making themselves more aware of affirmative practice there is an at least openness to see how can i position myself as someone who's open to working with queer clients yeah but there is still a lot more silence about things like caste for example I'm still very tentative about aspects of caste like should we bring it up should we not bring it up how does it work we have our own hesitancies our own fears about this and even if a client does bring it up we might sort of not be sure we might also feel a little unsettled if we don't belong to that particular yeah. caste group and like you were saying that there might be guilt and shame for you know being part of the group that has been the historical oppressor in some yeah. sense so there is a lot of tentativeness about that and i think that we do have a long way to go in terms of thinking about some of those aspects a little bit more actively maybe that's yeah. something that we we might want to as practitioners think much more about that what are those specific identity markers that i that i'm comfortable with i'm able to talk about in terms of diversity and which of those i feel like a little uncertain about how do i feel about those parts of my own identity what's coming up for me so strongly is that two things right that one is i think the the myth of neutrality as therapists then really departed from that idea at this point right then so much of our social identity then becomes relevant to therapeutic conversations and plays a crucial role in enabling access and now when i'm also thinking about access then also looking at safety that so if my client is asking me or is curious about my social location or say if i'm somebody who believes in self disclosure as a therapist so maybe right at the beginning when i'm setting the frame of therapy at that very onset i talk about my social locations 
I'm also then establishing safety between myself and my client in a particular way. Again, I think we were coming back to that same ethical principle of maleficence versus beneficence, right? No, of course, and these are just, you know, really thoughts, Sahana. I think, you know, each person has their own journey and their own path and like all have our own ways to discover what works for us and our clients. But really to say that one is the fact that we are acknowledging that, you know, client safety is important and recognizing that people come to us and they're sharing distress. They are talking about their vulnerabilities. They are bringing their vulnerable parts in. And those identities which are most vulnerable are expressed. But at the same time, for us to also recognize that there are other parts to the client which perhaps are also there, which also express their strengths, which also tell us that even, for example, like you were talking about access, I was thinking about the fact that being able to come into the therapy room, we don't even know the kind of battles that perhaps they have already to be here. Yeah. you know, who are the people they've had to convince? Who are the people who said things about them going seeing a therapist and they've had to sort of take care of and what they are battling in their own minds in terms of their own self-perception to be sitting in front of us. That part of access is totally invisible. We never think about that. We just think access is about like what is happening outside, but there's a lot of it that's happening in the person's system and in the person's mind before they can actually be there right in front of us. So the acknowledgement that, this is far more layered, far more complex, is the first step is what I would for us to just acknowledge and say that, okay, you know, what is really going on here? How can we unpack that? And then maybe begin with the root of self work before we actually start doing this work, bringing this work into our client. The more we are able to acknowledge and become aware of what we're able to see and what we perhaps have as blind spots. So using a tool like whether it's some form of reflective practice, some form of journaling, having spaces with peers where these conversations are possible. Because yeah. I also feel like, you know, we have our own boundaried consciousness. And when we engage with peers, our peers help us actually expand that boundaried consciousness because yeah. those ideas come in and we're able to really grow with those ideas. So I feel when those questions are asked in safe spaces, when people have those conversations, we are able to also then think about things more critically. Like you were saying that, you know, I might be working with a particular model, but someone helps me see it in a particular way. I'm able to then see how this might or might not work for the clients that I might be working with. I think actively engaging in those spaces and those conversations, doing that bit of self-work, whether it's in in supervisory spaces or peer spaces or personal reflective spaces, I think that could be a first safe way to start engaging with this. I was saying that, you know, these days a lot of these conversations are happening. So many avenues and there are so many people talking about exactly this across the world. And the truth is that, you know, one thing which I realize is that, you know, I might not share a minority identity exactly same as my client. No one who can really say that I've never experienced marginalization in exactly the same way. There might be in some other identity that I might have experienced it, maybe not in the same way, but in, in some small form. And that empathy is possible. I think yeah. for us to recognize that in some way empathy is possible and it's not like I have to have had that same experience. And also that support being available for me to sort of really attune with my client and make that connect, that would be the next bridge is what I would think that, you know, what makes it possible for me to connect and what comes in my way of connecting with that client. And then, of course, like we were saying that maybe, you know, thinking more deeply about language, thinking more deeply about power, thinking about the process. And of course, if we really feel strongly about 
uh, client voices and thinking more about how we could take more feedback, how we could take more permission from clients as we work with them. That would also give us a lot of understanding of what really works for our clients because the only way we can know is actually hearing it from them. If we, you know, really take this aspect of feedback into consideration, I feel like that's the best way to perhaps think. And it could be, you know, moment by moment permission through the session or it could be like a end of the hour check-in or it could be as a transition out from therapy. But I think really hearing it from them, what, what has worked and what's not. Are there certain things that you know are working in different contexts of work right now with respect to therapist accountability and access? Is there an example or a story that comes to mind for you that embodies some of these ideas and this this change in some ways? One thing that comes to my mind actually is that there is work that's happening which is acknowledging that you know people's choices to seek help or read services is linked to their the systems that they are part of and larger structural inequities. So whether a woman is able to seek therapy or not, and we see that a lot in our country in terms of, because, you know, usually the person who's paying for that service, if that person is a parent or a a husband, for example, so age, gender, all of that sort of ties in and and plays out. So access is not a very simple issue. It is linked to larger structural inequities and there are larger systems at play. And I think, Like you were saying that for the person on the other side who is a practitioner, for them to be able to acknowledge that what kind of challenges the person might have experienced in being able to access that resource or that service can be a very crucial part of the work that is done. So one of the things that is happening around the world is to be able to raise critical consciousness, even amongst people who are seeking services to recognize how these systems might work and how systems themselves can be oppressive and might be contributing to their mental well-being and distress. And that's also shifting conversations. So while it's not just one framework, I know there are many models that are based on this that work for women, that work for adolescents, and not all of them might be looking at access in exactly the same way. But really drawing on this idea of critical consciousness and building that overall level of awareness groups, in systems, in individuals. So we are all able to see some of this more closely because the idea is that unless we question those larger discourses and we actually unpack how systems are impacting people's realities, perhaps people can then take complete responsibility and end up internalizing a lot of this as their own fault. Thank you so much, ma'am, for your time. And I think this really sort of sets the tone for looking at skills very differently, looking at really our values very, very differently and our ethics very differently. But thank you so much for holding space for this and really opening up these avenues for us to think about. No, thank you, Ahana. I think it's been such a pleasure thinking about this. And I know, of course, I've shared ideas in a very raw way, just as they have come up for me. I'm sure the moment these questions are put out there, we all find our own answers. And like I said, that we have our own ways of figuring out how we want to take these conversations forward and how do we want to take our work forward. But Mm -hmm. I think there's just so much possibility that opens up and we're all thinking about these aspects. Um, I think we're beyond that point in time where we can be blind to some of this and we owe it to our profession to really just engage with this more deeply. So I think that asking these questions is helpful. Thank you, ma'am.